welcome to SDG Coffee Break and Adrenaline Memories. We're doing a little chew this morning and discussion about local anesthetics. And uh, so Stan, how's it going? Good. It's been absolutely super busy this week. We've been celebrating the uh, trainees who passed the last exam and it's been lots of fun. And oh, I think that's one of the best moments when we can sort of share those experiences um, with our trainees and with you guys who are going to be there in six to 12 months, I'm sure. That's right. Oh, sorry, less than that, actually. But yes, you you did such a great job. I mean, for our particular training team, North, Northwestern training team, pretty much everyone has got through. It's just a ridiculous amount of work and achievement, um, kind of coaching and everyone studying and working hard and building that community. So, yeah, really well done. because That's that's an amazing, amazing achievement. As I said uh, in the group, it's a team effort. And I think one of the key things is that, you know, we've got a lot of good structures and supports in place in our program at Northwest. And you know what? I just want to share it with all you guys out there. So that's the main key goal is to have every one of you outside of our Northwest training scheme also be successful and pass the exam and really enjoy the experience. I think that's the main uh, key goal here. Beautiful. And um, I've got I've got an ulterior motive as well, because the, the West Australian guys are really kind. There's this pot plant behind me that you can see on the on the YouTube video, but that was a gift from them. And Yep, thanks, West Australian guys. Shout out to you for having a really great um, exam session and everyone getting through. And yeah, well, well done. I think we we've got a soft spot for the WA trainees. <laughs> That's right. Um, now, should we crack on to you know get straight onto this question? Yes, let's do it. Fantastic. Okay, so this was a 2016 question from the first sitting. Question number six. And it says, discuss the factors influencing the speed of onset of blockade of a major peripheral nerve with local anesthetic. What do you think of that? So look, one of the key uh, things I want to point out with this question is that uh, we're just going to focus on speed of onset, but there are certainly other concepts uh, surrounding that we're also going to touch on and discuss as well. The other thing here is that uh, it's talking about a major peripheral nerve. Now, I'm just going to expand on that idea uh, because there is certainly a um, differentiation in terms of onset and also the type of nerve involved as well. So in other words, we are going to answer the question, but we're also going to go a little bit beyond that um, with some concepts related to answering this question. And look, I think for this question here, you can really structure it with fixed law of diffusion. And so... This will describe the physical chemical properties of the local anesthetics. And we know that fixed law of diffusion is the rate of diffusion is proportional to your concentration gradient, uh, your solubility divided by the square root of your molecular weight, and also multiplied by the surface area divided by thickness. Mm-hmm. I think you'll see that formula replicated multiple times in different concepts. So kidneys, um, other drugs as well. Excellent. And I, so I like the fact that obviously you're breaking it down, you've got your categories all sorted, but you also, nothing in the STEM is ever accidental. I, I feel like it would be very easy to forget the fact that they've said major peripheral nerve, but that's in the STEM and nothing the examiner's put in there is by accident and you have to address that. So physical chemical properties and characteristics of nerves are the, I guess the two ways you're approaching this and you've done fixed law. So yeah, could you describe each component? Look, I... Th- I think before we go into that, I think it is important to have a brief overview of how local anesthetics work. So if I was to just describe it 
um, what you would have is you'd have the local anesthetic would be deposited near the nerve. And here, after it's deposited, it can be removed. So it gets removed by tissue binding. It also gets removed by the circulation and also with local metabolism when we're talking about ester local anesthetics. The key point here is that it's the free drug that penetrates the nerve, into the nerve. And when we're talking about into the nerve, there's a couple of layers that uh, you want to know about. So it's the epineurium, the perineurium, and the endoneurium. And it's the perineurium that's going to be the biggest barrier to diffusion. Now, the speed and extent at which it diffuses across is dependent on two key things, the pKa and its lipid solubility. Now, the transmission of signals, they're primarily via depolarization via voltage-gated sodium channels. Um, I'm just going to give a really brief overview here. So these sodium channels, they can exist in three states, the resting, active, and inactive state. And the binding is in the pore of the channel. Now, to access the pore of the channel, the sodium channels either need to be in the active or inactive state. So they can't be in the resting state, which is the closed state, okay? Now, the way that it uh, sort of interacts with the channel is that one, it can stabilize the channel into the inactive state. And you'll see this theory called the modulation receptor theory. The other way that it can block is that it directly blocks the channel. And that's called the guarded receptor theory. So you'll see these two theories and that's what they mean. Now, um, I think that uh, the key points here are going to be solubility and pKa. Yeah. And uh, and what are your thoughts about that, La? Yeah, I was just thinking. I mean, so solubility and pKa they they really relate, obviously, to the um, fixed law of diffusion. Um, you know, I, I just find that all the different categories of drugs they they seem to invoke these principles of pKa and solubility, but solubility is directly mentioned in the fixed law of diffusion. Uh, whereas PK is not, it's almost like a surrogate, uh, which increases solubility of transfer. Are they both equally important or is one more important than the other? Great question. So look for local anesthetics here, it's the PKA that's going to be the most important because that determines, that determines the degree of ionization and unionization. And it's the unionization fraction that actually diffuses the cross yeah okay and so why not solubility because i guess it's lipid solubility that they're specifically talking about when we talk about solubility of local anesthetics but why not lipid solubility as described by fixed law this is a really good question and this is something that i think trips up a lot of people okay because when we think about lipid solubility our direct um, association is that the more lipid soluble a drug is the quicker it works I think that's a very general theme that we can think about in terms of our IV induction agents. Wouldn't you agree, La? Yeah. As in, um, yeah, go on, go on. Yeah. And, and so the key thing here to understand about local anesthetics is that there is an interplay between lipid solubility, protein binding, and potency. So I'll repeat that concept again. With lipid solubility, with local anesthetics, there is an interplay between the lipid solubility and protein binding and the lipid solubility and its potency. In other words, when you increase the lipid solubility of local anesthetics, you are also going to be increasing protein 
binding. And remember what I said at the start, when you give the, the local anesthetic near a nerve, what takes it away is three things. It's protein binding. It's going to be taken away by the circulation or the vascular supply. And it's going to be taken away by um, or removed by metabolism specifically for ester local anesthetics. Now, practically speaking, none of these things happen in isolation is what you're saying. And that's why you can't just increase one without having effects on the other in a practical sense. And then this kind of also relates then back to, uh, you know, opioids, I imagine, fentanyl, highly lipid soluble, very potent. And, you know, you, you just use less of the drug when you're giving it, you know, irrespective of the PKA. And that, was, that, that, yeah, that one there is actually related to the PKA of uh, fentanyl versus L-fentanyl. So yeah. that's a really good point as well. That's a really good example as well. Um, now, the, the other thing that I also want to mention is that when you increase lipid solubility, you also increase the potency of the local anesthetic. So when you increase the potency of local anesthetic, it actually means you're going to be using less of the local anesthetic. And, you know, a classic example is bupivacaine versus uh, lignocaine. Bupivacaine is more lipid soluble. It's got more protein binding and it's more potent. And therefore, what that means is that it's got a slower onset because you're going to use less of the drug. And remember, it's that mass effect. If you, because lignocaine is less potent, you're going to use more of the drug, which means that there is more of the drug available to diffuse across. And that refers back to that concentration gradient as part of fixed law of diffusion. Now, I think um, the other thing that, um, you know, trainees will often ask, well, they go, well, how about if it's the other way? In other words, how about if there is a, a local anesthetic that is less lipid soluble, which means that it's got less protein binding? Well, this is where there needs to be a balance. So you have to be moderately lipid soluble, something like lignocaine, because local anesthetics with very low lipid solubility uh, and the one that comes to mind is going to be procaine, which is one of the ester local anesthetics. It's got a slower onset. So even though it's got low, very, very low protein binding, um, it's got a very, very slow onset. Um, and look, and the other thing that you can also say that it's also because it's got a much higher PKA as well. But, um, you know, all those things come into play. And so, yeah, not, none of this stuff is linear. It's not like you've got this you know, isolated thing called solubility and the more it is, the less, you know, the slow onset it is and the less lipid soluble and the faster onset it is. It's, it just doesn't play like play out like that. Um, and and I, I mean, I, I like the fact that you're giving these examples and to, you know, to a, in a context, you know, you're giving examples of procaine and bupivacaine, but then in the exam, you can write these down as your examples and discuss them rather than discussing just the factors themselves. So you mentioned then PKA. So why is PKA important? And this, this scares me a little bit because, you know, in my head, there's all these negative log, uh, you know, fractions of drugs in, in my head. And, um, you know, how, how, do you, how do you visualize that and explain that? Yeah. So really good question. Now, I, I think some of the non-clamature out there can be a bit confusing. When we talk about the um, PKA, it talks about, the dissociation constant, where it's 50% um, ionized and 50% unionized. Specifically, when we're talking about PKA, um, the A actually stands for acid. Now, local anesthetics are bases. 
And that's why sometimes you'll see the terms PKB used. But I think that for more, for most intensive purposes, um, you know, it's accepted that uh, we're going to use the term PKA. But just know that there's a difference between acid and bases, and sometimes you'll see those differences there. Okay, really, really important to to know that because when we think about the Henderson Hasselbeck equation, so this is where pH equals the pKa plus the log of bicarb concentration of bicarb divided by the concentration of CO2, that is for an acid. And the bicarb represents the ionized fraction and the CO2 represents the unionized fraction. When we think about it in terms of a base, you have to flip that around, okay? So for a base, the pH equals the pKa, or sometimes you see it as pKb, plus the log of the unionized drug over the ionized drug. Now I say that, and I don't think you need, I don't think you need to memorize it, but I do think you just need to be aware of it so that when you come across it, you can understand the differences and you can understand why it's explained a little bit different, okay? Because remember that the henderson Hasselbeck equation is talking about an acid. And sometimes when we apply that to a lot of our anesthetic drugs, most of our anesthetic drugs are actually bases. Mm. All right. Now, I got asked this by a patron um, in terms of how do we calculate the ionized and unionized fraction. Look, I, I think that it would be unreasonable for you to prove to prove that in the exam um, because it requires you to understand about taking antilogs um, for the for both equations. And whilst you know if you practice it, yes, you can do it um, easily on the day. It, it is, I think. Um, overly complex and I don't think it's necessary. And the other thing that you need to also do is that you need to, you need to change the ratio to a, or the fraction to a, to a percentage. And so there becomes like this, um, you know, uh, I think that there, there is that bit of confusion in terms of how to do that. But um, what I'll sort of show you is, is just a formula that uh, you can use that can actually calculate the unionized fraction. So what I'll do is I will uh, bring up my little uh, keynote here and I'll put a new slide in here and I'll paste it. And Stan, you're saying, <clears throat> you know, really you don't need to know how to calculate these things. It's, it's going into anti-logs. And I think we're all a bit relieved that, you, you know, you're not gonna be tested on some pretty no. maths as much as we all love maths. Um, That's right. But be saying that if you were to remember anything, if you had a bit of extra brain space, this is a formula for ionized fraction for bases, and this is a formula for unionized fraction for bases, and and that's the thing to remember. If anything, is that right? Yeah. And look, I'll show you how to calculate it. Um, so I'm just going to go into my Zoom here, and what I'll do is, um, live. You know, for those listening, obviously on the podcast, you won't be able to see this, uh, but uh, live, you could maybe if you could read it. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, I'll put this in the story notes in the podcast, so that's all good. But 10 to the power pH takeaway yes. pKa divided by, and this is in brackets, 1 plus 10 to the power pH minus pKa um, is the unionized fraction for bases. Is that what that reads? Okay. Yeah. And let's, let's, do some, let's do some examples here. Okay. 
So let's say um, the pKa and pH are equal to one another. So that would mean 10 to the power of zero. Agree? Yep. Yep. And when and what's 10 to the power of zero? 10 to the power of zero is going to be one. Yep. Okay. So when pH equals uh, pKa, all right, that would mean that you get one divided by one plus one, which equals? That's just 50%. 50%. Exactly. And that's exactly right. So let's use an example now of um, lignocaine. So we know, and we know you, you'll see different numbers for the um, pK of lignocaine. You see 7.8, 7.9. Let's just use 7.9 just because it's easy. Mm -hmm. All right. So now we've got um, pH is 7.4 and your pKa of lignocaine is 7.9, all right? And therefore, if we do that, that is 10 to the power of minus 0 0.5. Would you agree? Yeah, yeah, and, and can you quickly do that on your calculator? What does that equal to? <laughs> now, you assume that I've got a calculator that's gonna... <laughs> I was uh, assuming that you've got around. a calculator brain. Uh, yeah, yeah, so why, why don't you just do it and you just let us know? <laughs> <laughs> so I, I, I think it's going to be about 0.3 uh, from, uh, from memory. But uh, double check that. And then it's going to be 0.3 divided by 1 plus 1, uh, 0.3. And what does that equal? 0.3 divided by 1 over 1 plus 3 is... 0.3 divided by 1.3. That's 0.23. Yeah, it's about 0.23 or 25 percent. Yeah, yeah. I think I think it's a little bit more than 0.3. So it's going to be around 25 percent. And and guess what? The the unionized fraction of lignocaine is. Yeah, so unionized will be 25 percent. So around 25 percent, and those are the numbers that you see. Now um, you might see another example, which is I think. Um, Tetracaine, tetracaine has a very high pKa. And let's use an example now where the pKa of the drug is, is um, 8.4, okay? So pH equals 7.4, your pKa of a drug equals 8.4. Now 10 to the power of negative one is going to be uh, 0 0.1, okay? And then 0 0.1 divided by 1.1, that will give you approximately 9%. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. Or not 9 to 10%. Now, just for everyone watching, this is absolute, this is this is more for understanding, yeah? This you given the formula, this for understanding, you know, there's no way you're expected to I mean, do you think that they want you to write this formula down in the exam? No. No, no. Okay. this is just fun. But I, but I think it helps you understand in terms of you know where these degrees of ionization and unionization comes from. Okay, look, I think if you can, if you know this, it, look, it's a bit hard, but obviously if you can understand this formula, the ten to the power of pH minus pKa divided by one plus ten to the power of pH minus pKa will give you the unionized unionized fraction. You can calculate any ionized fraction for. Um, any basic drugs. Any basic drugs. So this is also for um, your opioids. Is also for your, uh, uh, you know, really, really any of the ba base drugs for, for anesthetics. You can do that. And yes, so where, correct. Where the other ones are relevant. Really, it's opioids, not really muscle relaxants. 
Um, now, now the, the thing is, if you want to, if we want to do it for acids, this does, it does the unionized fractions for acids. Uh, ionized fraction. Ionized fraction. So, yeah. so if you want the unionized, if you want the unionized fraction, you have to actually change the formula around where you've got to go 10 to the power of pKa minus pH. Beautiful. And that's actually, yeah. you, you just, you just take away the, fra the, the percentage and you get the ionized fraction. Yeah. That's but you can see why this is so confusing and I don't want to confuse everyone out there, but I think that because I was asked this question, I think it's good just to sort of explain it. And so that you sort of know um, and appreciate, I think the, um, the way that it sort of worked out and the way that, uh, you know, your application of the Henderson Hasselbeck equation occurs for these drugs. That's really elegant. That's really good. Yep. Um, should we move on to molecular weight? Yeah, look, molecular weight is interesting. So it doesn't play a big role. Um, I think when you look at the amide local anesthetics, you can sort of say that, uh, that the faster working local anesthetic agents tend to have lower molecular weights. So things like pralocaine, lignocaine. Lignocaine's got a molecular weight of 234 per mole compared to bupivacaine, which is 288 um, grams per mole. But that also fits in with the idea of lipid solubility because the reason why bupivacaine has a higher molecular weight is that it's got more um, carbons in it. Mm -hmm. Now, I guess where this sort of um, doesn't sort of correlate is when you look at the esters, because the esters uh, tend to have a much higher molecular weight mm -hmm. and some of them like cocaine and tetracaine actually work just as quick, despite mm. them having, having high molecular weight. So that it's something a little bit more than just molecular weight. Okay. But I, I guess when you're sort of comparing like to like um, for local anesthetics, so when you're comparing the amide groups, mm. the smaller molecular weights will tend to have a faster onset. And maybe that's the way that you could um, add that concept in for this answer here. Yeah. Okay. Oh, is this a situation like muscle relaxants where the molecular weights aren't overly like, you know, obviously they're different, but they're not magnitudes of order different. So they don't yeah. make much of a difference. Is that? I think so. Okay. Okay. Good. Yeah. So that's molecular weight. How about surface area? How would you go about explaining that? So what I would do with surface area is that I would bring in the concept that you need to blow, you need to block at least uh, three nodes of, um, the Ranvia. So the Ranvia nodes, they talk about um, there's a minimum amount of these, these little gaps that you need to block and three is the optimum. And the way that you get that uh, minimum of three is through local anesthetic spread. The way to get local anesthetic spread is to use volume. Mm -hmm. And that's where I would introduce the idea that uh, if you use higher volumes, you would tend to get a lot more spread, a lot more coverage, a lot more surface area um, covered. Okay. Yeah, that makes sense. I think that that makes sense. I mean, for us, you know, when I think about uh, the blocks that I do, I would tend, if I wanted to have a faster onset, I would use higher concentration and I would probably use higher volumes as well. It makes a real appreciable difference. I, I think of the fast acting blocks that I'll do regularly are the eye blocks. And, you know, if I use two mils in a subtenons, it takes ages to work. But as soon as I put, you know, I generally put three mils, but if I do use four mils, because I really just need to get that occupation in, then it is, a, is such a rapid onset block. Um, but we were just at this conference in Wellington and they, they were trying to, were, were you in that? Yeah, you were with me in the, um, in the audience there where they're talking about the phrenic nerve 
uh, effects of interscaling blocks. And they're doing studies on five mils versus, you know, 15 to 20 mils. And it was kind of the captain obvious of statements where five mils of anesthetic will, you know, death will, it's far less likely to paralyze a phrenic nerve, but you just have less chance of, um, you know, a successful block. And yeah. I thought, well, that's kind of obvious. That's good. It makes sense. And um, you, I think that uh, when you're first starting off, you'll find that uh, higher volumes are often that, that give you that margin of safety. But as you get technically a lot better with, you know, ultrasound and your needle technique and, you can, and you're comfortable with, um, you know, getting closer to the nerves, that's when I think you can lower your volumes uh, down. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, I was going to ask you before you go on, do you use sodium bicarb for any of your local anesthetic solutions to quicken onset? Only one, only for obstetrics for the epidural top-ups. Yep. And that's because it's, and it's such a system in place, but I've never added it. Actually, no, maybe I've added it once to a case, um, but no, it's not something I regularly do, but I'd, I'd be, I'd totally be in, you know, I, I wouldn't be against adding sodium bicarb. How about you? And just, and just for the audience, um, you know, Lyon and I work at the same institution. What's the, what's the amount that you use for, you know, the local anesthetic solution for the epidurals? Yes, I mean, we usually drop like 18 mils of 2% lignocaine, add in 100 mics of adrenaline. So that's roughly five mics per mil or one in 200,000. And then two mils of the sodium bicarb. And then another two mils is the fentanyl that might uh, be added onto that as well. Now that, that bicarb percentage, that's um, a 1% solution? Or, or some... some... I, oh, sodium bicarb comes in 8.4%. 8, 8. Beautiful, 8.4% solution. So two mils yeah. of 8.4% is what we, what we add in. And, and so I think, um, you know, the, the audience might ask you, why do you add adrenaline in? Yeah, I mean, simply for a longer lasting block, the epidural space is so vascular that you can get just rapid, uh, yeah, rapid dispersion of your local anesthetic. Adrenaline just gives you that margin of safety. And again, you know, you're in this, you know, cesarean section, you don't know how it's going to go. You just want to make sure you've got a bit of margin of safety. And, and it, it, it's such a safe drug to give as long as you're not, you know, it, even if you're intravascular, you'll figure that out with the test doses that you give. So you'll completely know, know of the risks and five mics per mil of adrenaline is so safe. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, I think one of the things that I often get asked is, does adrenaline quicken the onset of local anesthetics? And the logic that they'll often say is that, well, Stan, you've said that, um, you know, when you give the local anesthetic near the nerve, one of the things that occurs is that, uh, or, the, or that takes the free drug away is that it gets tissue bounded. It gets removed from the vascular circulation and that it gets metabolized. And they go, well, adrenaline theoretically vasoconstricts, decreases your vascular supply and theoretically should increase the concentration of the drug at the nerve. So why doesn't it? increase the onset and i think the key thing is that it doesn't statistically increase the onset so i think the studies have shown when they looked at using adrenaline um, from what i've seen it's a little bit quicker but not statistically significant mm. okay and i think that's that's the key thing and i think there are a couple of reasons for that so I think the primary reason is that when you look at the um, the onset of effect of lignocaine, it's a couple of minutes. 
They talk about adrenaline having the maximal vasoconstrictor effect at about four or five minutes. Okay. So I think by that time, local anesthetic has already worked already. And therefore, um, it's more important in terms of duration than it is for onset. The second thing is that lignocaine, I'm sorry, adrenaline actually comes in acidic solution. Mm. So when you add an acidic solution to a basic solution, you're going to decrease the pH. And we know what happens when you decrease the pH with local anesthetics. You're going to increase the ionized fraction. And if you increase the ionized fraction, then that decreases the amount of diffusible drug that goes through. And I think the, the classic example of creating acidic environments would also be in, um, in like infected tissues they talk about. And so, yeah. I mean, knowing that, are you surprised that more people don't use sodium bicarb for every block? Or, you know, even like, let's say you are trying to inject around an abscess just for whatever, so the surgery or post-op pain relief, why not give sodium bicarb added to all of these solutions? I think that is an excellent idea. And, um, you know, I, I think that if, if you were had, if you had a case where you felt it was important for the patient to be, to have a regional technique mm. and that the patient had, um, was, um, had an infected tissue. So a couple of things is that a, yes, you could use sodium bicarbonate around the tissue, or you could actually go a lot more proximal. Mm. So do a more proximal block, um, for that patient to block, um, that limb but yeah look i i think for most of my elective cases that i do and i do a lot of orthopedics where i'll use one percent narapin it's not time critical for me to get that block in within you know five minutes mm. like um it, you know i can have the onset come on at about sort of 10 to 15 minutes just because of the workflow that i do where i do it in the anesthetic bay get the patient across, get the patient in position. By the time the surgeon preps and drapes, it's about sort of 15 minutes is when it's when the onset occurs. But certainly I think when you think about it in terms of using it as an epidural for a cesarean, especially emergency cesarean, you do want to have that quicker onset, which is why um, we used sodium bicarb at our institution. But in saying that, you know, I've been to other institutions which don't use sodium bicarb and I'm sure you've been yeah. uh, to the same as well. Still works fine. <laughs> I think, you know, appreciably, probably just about in a couple of minutes, I would think, you know, one or two minutes. Yeah, okay. What, what is your block formula, by the way, for inter, an interscaling? So my interscaling blocks, I would use um, probably around eight mils of 1% uh, narapin, so mm -hmm. high concentration. Mm -hmm. And I would also add some additives as well. So I would add some dexamethasone and some clonidine as well. Yeah. Okay. And the dexamethasone and clonidine is not for onset, it's for duration. And I think that's another topic for another day when we think about um, what affects the duration of local anesthetics. Yeah, sounds good. Um, so just to quickly summarize there, surface area, you need a lot of volume. You need to cover three nodes of Ranvia. I love that. That's a fact there that's really interesting. Um, and yeah, so we talked about surface area. Now, what affects thickness? Well, thickness, the way that I think about thickness, uh, when we think about local anesthetic, is going to be distance, distance to the nerve. So in other words, the closer you are to the nerve, the faster the onset. And I think that makes sense. The further away you are, um, the longer it's going to take. And certainly, you know, with the advent of ultrasound and being able to visualize the nerves, you can find that you can actually get very, very 
um, rapid onset, relatively rapid onset with uh, most local anesthetics. I remember seeing this uh, study about you know in, intraneural blocks, obviously not for the big trunks and stuff, but for things like supraclaviculars. And you know, this I think there's a guy who did a whole series of these, which was just small volumes, one or two mils in the intra kind of intra, an intraneural space, and um, just getting super fast onset. And he, you know, because he was using a blunt needle, it, it, it wasn't a cutting needle. Again, you know, probably not the technique you want to be doing when you're first starting out. But um, yeah, that that kind of very much proving the point of speed of onset. Um, I yeah, also I, I haven't I haven't dared I haven't dared do it yet. I've read about it, yeah. but it's not something that I'm super comfortable yet. Oh, and also because it, you know, I think um, that the techniques that we have um, of putting local anesthetic around the nerve works just as well. But yeah, you know, I think, I guess it's comforting to know that if you inadvertently do a um, intraneural injection, as long as you realize it, if you just inject one or two mils and you notice that, oh, there's a lot of pressure here, mm-hmm. um, it's still, it's still safe. I think where it, um, where you can cause significant morbidity is when you don't realize it and inject the whole, you know, your whole eight, 10 mils into that, uh, into that yeah. neurovascular, into the neural bundle. It really is like you know, you're either damaging nerves with cut, you know, cutting through them, damaging, or it's increased pressure causing ischemia. So you really got to watch out. And and maybe just a disclaimer, you know, if you're looking at interscaling, it's big trunks, so it's got a very high axon to stromal ratio. They're more at danger. But if you're looking at peripheral nerves, they've got a very low axon to stromal ratio. There's lots of space around these little nerve bundles, um, which do have space to expand, and you know, probably probably a bit safer. Uh, but again, <laughs> probably a talk for another. Oh. Uh, with um, the thickness, uh, you know, often use higher lays uh, for eye blocks. And that's one of the game changers, really. Like, it really does appreciably speed my onset. Um, high lays is almost like decreasing the thickness because it's an enzyme that's breaking down tissue. And um, would you add that or would you talk about that in this situation? I think that's a great one to add, especially for eye blocks. It's, there's certainly really good evidence uh, for the use of higher lays in eye blocks. And you do a lot of eye blocks, don't you, La? Yeah, just put 30... Uh, units per mil in and and so you've seen the difference between using high lays and no high lays oh yeah that, right I'm, I'm trying to simplify my technique to the most easy thing to draw up just for safety and efficiency and really i can't get past you know i've gone down to just using two percent lignocaine but without high lays it is incredibly slow but with high lays it's super fast yeah and i think you know for that kind of list where it's quick turnover uh it is important to get sort of quick onset isn't it yeah, absolutely. Um, so finally, characteristics of nerves. This is going back to really the second big category in the question of a major peripheral nerve. What are the factors affecting that speed of onset? So yeah, tell me about that. Yeah. So so look, this one here, you know, you, you probably don't need to add this in this answer here because the answers, I mean, the question specifically asked about a major peripheral nerve. Mm-hmm. So a major peripheral nerve is going to be one of your um, a, a delta nerves. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, and I think that um, when we think about it in terms of nerve distribution, I'm going to show you this table and I want you, it's from Miller's and I want you just to, you know, just to describe it for the audience. And then I think we can sort of go through it from here. Okay. So can you see that? La? Yes, I can. So this is table 29.3 from Miller's. This is from Miller's. All right. Oh, uh, yeah like the latest version of Miller's. <laughs> so so what do you think? So the fiber class? Yeah. And so here we've got, yeah, fiber class A, you got all the subclasses, they're, they're all myelinated, which is important. So you're going to have 
kind of larger diameter, fast conduction nerves. And it really is like proprioception, motor function. Um, yeah. They've got oh, pain, cold and temperature. That's right. So A delta can be pain, cold and temperature and susceptibility to anesthetic block. That's interesting, but it, it looks here like it's... And, uh, yeah, good. And I'm glad you put out, you put out that uh, first point that A delta is for pain. Because what have they got here on this uh, table here? Yeah, it says muscle tone for A delta. And I think they meant to. So that's, a, that's the first mistake. First mm. mistake is that you, you spotted it right away. And I haven't even shown La this table. So, so the one that's going to be the subclass for your muscle spindles is actually gamma. Okay. So A delta should be the one below. And that should be for your afferent sensory nerves, pay called temperature and touch. Um, since you've identified a couple of mistakes in Miller, do you get editors' rights now? Like, is that <laughs> no, definitely not. Uh, anyway, uh, um, so got... but what do you think about the susceptibility to local anesthetic block? What, yeah, what have they said there? That makes sense. I mean, the, the lower the diameter, the less myelinated, the more susceptible. Which then, really, as you go through, you know, the fiber class B and C, it's it's showing less susceptibility, which is doesn't seem quite right. You know, your, your C fibers are tiny fibers, unmyelinated. Yeah. The most susceptible. Yes. I hundred percent agree with that idea because I'll show you the next slide. So the next slide is table 20.2 from Hemmings uh, and Egan. Completely. And, with the yes. And, C. and what have you got there? Yeah, exactly. So, so this is, so this is for the audience um, for on the podcast, we're looking at table 20.2 from Hemmings and Egan now. Beautiful, and so yeah, fiber B and C, they've pretty much done the what we think is the correct um, notation for sensitivity to block. So they've got you know four pluses for B fibers and C fibers, B fibers being the autonomic type fibers, C fibers being pain, temperature, touch fibers. And again, they're very susceptible to block. So this, this table looks far more again, accurate, even going into A delta fibers, which have three pluses for sensitivity to block, because you know they're a bit larger than the C fibers. Um, so yeah, this this seems pretty accurate. Are and, they and I think yeah, and I think in terms of representing this as an answer, I think this would be the most accepted because this is what we see clinically. Mm -hmm. I think that you know if you think about it in terms of sensitivity, we would say that B fibers, in, from going from most sensitive to least sensitive, we'll start with B fibers, C fibers, A delta. A gamma, a beta, and a alpha. Yeah, and we see that, don't we, La, when we do um, our epidurals? Because often, what gets knocked off first? It's actually the sympathetics. Yes, and yeah, and the fact that they're pain or it's like say they're having contractions, those will go away immediately, but they'll still be able to move their legs. Um, and yes, and, and that's the a alpha, correct? Yeah. And it's interesting, like in the this was um I used to read a lot of. IJO, as so International Journal of Obstetric Anesthesia, talking about, you know, what is the best uh, marker of, you know, effective block for a cesarean section? And, you know, most of the time we're using bilateral absence of cold to T4. That's like kind of the standard. It's easy to measure. You get a bit of ice and you do that. But, but the studies have shown, uh, I hope I get this right, but block of light touch to T5 bilaterally is the best indicator that you're not going to have any um, problems with, or, you know, your spinal is going to last uh, for the cesarean. And the next most effective measure is motor block presence. Uh, so inability to move the legs. So cold and pain uh, are the least effective 
uh, measures. It, but but that's it's just interesting because we use cold as our standard one, and that makes sense. I mean, it, it, it seems a bit odd because you're thinking, oh well, pain's my endpoint, so surely that should be the thing I'm, I should be testing for. But the way I see it is, if you're blocking motor and you know light touch, the really difficult to block fibers, then the chance of having a problem with your block is going to be far less likely. Well, that's a really good point. And when I was a registrar, credit to uh, uh, Ian Letson, if he's still uh, out there, I think he's still at the Mercy. So Ian Letson was um, my senior registrar, who's now a consultant. And that's exactly what he told me. And I actually don't use cold um, to test for my um, blocks uh, for cesareans. I actually use, I actually get the patient to actually touch themselves and to actually pinch themselves. <laughs> and I think it just reinforces the idea that, uh, you know, the idea of pain is a very, you know, personable, mm. um, uh, subjective experience mm. that's, uh, you know, there's so many layers to it because people can perceive a lot of different sensations as pain or discomfort. And so it's important for, for myself, you know, when I interact with my patients to let them know what is normal and what's not normal. And I think that cold thing is quite arbitrary. So I should get them just to, to pinch themselves. And I think it adds a little bit more realistic idea in terms of what they can expect mm -hmm. and what they shouldn't expect. Because then after that, I start pinching them up on their shoulders and I say, this is not what, what we expect. <laughs> and then uh, they pinch themselves down below. So, that's, that's really interesting. So yeah. I, I actually really like that to, you know, to prove to a patient who's nervous that they're not going to feel, um, you know, the pain of a cesarean section, just get them to cause themselves a, a bit of pain in a, in a safe way. Um, yeah. do, do you then check, do they check light touch as well? Like they kind of prove to themselves that they can't even feel light touch or? Yeah. So when, when they do it, it's funny when you see them try to pinch themselves, they actually they actually just touch themselves quite lightly. And you're like, no, no I want you to like really, really grab a piece of skin and really pinch it as hard as you can. So they should just do a bit of light touch at the start. Yeah. And after that, they start pinching themselves. Um, Love it. And then, uh, patient, that's, patient initiated that's, block level. Love it. Yeah. Patient initiated assessment of block level. That's what I do. Um, now, I just wanted to show this paragraph because this is in Miller's. And again, I just want you to be aware of it because this is contrary to what Lara and I just talked about. And I think what other textbooks also say as well. So Lara, do you want, do you want to read out the highlighted bit that I've yeah. um, highlighted in Miller's? Sounds good. So small myelinated axons, that's A gamma motor and A delta sensory fibers are the most susceptible to impulse suppression. Next in order of block are the large myelinated A alpha and A beta fibers and the least susceptible are the small, non-myelinated C fibers. Oh, God. In fact, in this last group, impulses in the slowest conducting population, population conduction velocity 0.5 to 0.8 meters per second, are the most resistant to local anesthetic. Okay. So, so just be aware of that, okay? And I suspect that it has to do with how, um, you know, the experiments are done in terms of, you know, I guess measuring action potentials and the degree of suppression of the relative um, action potentials or the relative suppressions versus perhaps maybe, um, you know, the, the actual nerve conduction as a whole. I'm, I'm, look, I'm not sure, but I think that perhaps maybe it's to do with the way that experiments are designed because how can you get such different, you know, different results? You've got one textbook saying completely something totally different, and you've got Miller saying this. I in fact, Miller's is the only one that says this, actually, because if you actually read on 
um, most other textbooks, like all the pharmacology textbooks. So, um, you know, Rangdale and Richter, um, Goodman, Goodman and Gilman, they are very consistent with Hemmings and Hugh. So I'm, I'm a bit confused. I, I've got to say, when I first saw the tape, I thought that was a typo. I thought it was, a, it was just a editing editing error. But no, this is this is not an editing error. They're actually saying that this is yes, I believe. And I mean, that yes, makes me really curious. I mean, it's not a, it's I mean, Miller's is a it's a it's the Bible of anesthesia, right? It's um well, you know, we've we've proved the Bible wrong before, yeah, uh, right. you know, so yeah. it has so been done before. But let's not get into that, okay? Because okay. uh <laughs> You don't want to make it get in trouble. <laughs> okay, got it. I mean, that's um, that's it. I mean, to to summarize, we've you, you've essentially covered the physical chemical properties of local anesthetics, framed it in fixed law. You've really talked about you know a few things like PKA and lipid solubility and their interactions. The fact that they're not isolated things, that they you know lipid solubility in, interplays with protein binding and potency, therefore volume. Um, things like you know PKA and how you can check the unionized fraction. Um, and that's the one that passes through the membrane, therefore the most important part of it. The fact that molecular weight isn't as relevant in, in these medications and the other effects are far greater. The surface area, the three nodes of Ramvir, the thickness, which really is the distance to the nerve, and then a couple of characteristics of the nerves as well. So yeah, really Yeah, great. I think it's yeah. very, well, very well summarized. And you know, with, with the characteristics of the nerves, um, you can also add, if this question was not just about major peripheral nerves, um, you know, doing doing a block intrathecally versus regionally, because intrathecally you've got none of that um, uh, myelin sheath. You've got direct access to the nerves, which is why you use much smaller volumes mm -hmm. and why the onset is a lot quicker as well. Fantastic. Um, yeah. And I guess, look, there's, there's one other population you might want to add in, and that's going to be pregnancy. So, you know, there is that thought that uh, in pregnant patients, that uh, they've got a faster onset of local anesthetics. And there's a couple of theories behind that. Um, so one theory is that, so specifically when you're doing epidurals, it's about the engorgement of the epidural veins and that there is less space. And when there's less space, it means that your concentration of the drug within that space rises. So that makes sense. Um, when you're sort of doing things peripherally, the thought is that uh, they've got less um alpha-1 acid glycoprotein, which is the primary binding site for local anesthetics. And so because of that, they've got decreased protein binding, which means they've got more free drug available. And thirdly, could be the effect of progesterone as well, making them a lot um, more susceptible to uh, local anesthetics. And that's just the effect of, you know, a hormonal effect on the nerves. Okay. Yeah, that's what... And, and I think, yeah, if you can add that in somewhere, you know, I, I would frame it with as you said before, with fixed law of diffusion and try to fit those ideas into each one of those. So even, um, you know, with the, with the idea of, you know, the, the different nerve characteristics, I'm sure you could put that in with the idea of surface area and also thickness as well. And, and that's probably where I would add that in. The, the really challenging bit about this answer is that as you, um, understand and hopefully after this you know this this session here you understand the interplay between lipid solubility and protein binding and lipid solubility and potency how are you going to fit that in into that construct of fixed law of diffusion mm -hmm. because remember that fixed law of diffusion is proportional to your concentration gradient and then it's also proportional 
to your solubility divided by the square root of your molecular weight and then multiply it by the surface area divided by thickness. And it's that idea of that solubility is just not the only factor here when we talk about local anesthetic. And that's a really key point to come across in your answer, because if you can get that across, it will be obvious to the examiner, you understand the really important nuances and concepts related to onset of local anesthetics. Yeah, nice one. Hey, so at this point, Stan, um, should we get people to write questions in the chat and I'll read them out to you if people have any questions? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, team, yeah, any questions which I can grill Stan with? Hopefully I've gone through everything. I mean, we can go through, or do you want to quickly go through? Um, Here's uh, one. We can go through, we can also go through, um, you know, review Stuart Watson dances as well. I quite like doing that. Um, um, hey, so here's a question. I was wondering what the effect of myelination was on the speed of local anesthetic onset. Yeah, great question. So does the size diameter of the nerve equal smaller, faster, take priority over myelination? I think that has to do with, um, you know, that table there, the susceptibility to local anesthetics. Obviously, with myelin, um, with myelination, you've got the nodes around you. So you don't actually need to, need to cover the whole node. I mean, the whole nerve. You just need to cover those three nodes. And so that decreases the amount that you actually need to cover. But then the other thing that, that also needs to be taken into account is that the size of the nerves. So the size of these myelin nerves. And what I mean by that is that when you think about it in terms of um, the larger the nerve in the larger of the myelin sheet, so the A alpha nerves, they're going to be a lot slower. I think the classic example that I would give is that when you look at C unmyelinated nerves and B myelinated, ner myelinated nerves, so the B myelinated nerves come from, from preganglionic um, pre autonomic nervous system, so sympathetics, and then your postganglionics are the unmyelinated C. The B tend to be a lot more susceptible to local anesthetics. This is from Hemmings and Hughes compared to the unmyelinated C. So for like for like, myelinated would be faster. Does, does that answer that question? Yeah, thanks, Dan. Um, now the next question is, why is it that the M gate needs to be opened? That is the active or inactive state. Good question. So this has to do with how local anesthetics work. And the key thing is that you need to know where the binding site is for local anesthetics. If you understand or know where the binding site is, you know why the gate needs to be open. In other words, the binding site is actually inside the pore. And to get access to the pore, there's two ways to get access to the pore. One of the most common ways is to have the channel open to have the channel open, then the um, then your local anesthetic can diffuse across. And it's the aromatic side of the local anesthetic that binds to the binding site. And then it's the um uh and then the, it's the other site that uh that sticks out and blocks the channel and also stabilizes, and then the whole local anesthetic then just stabilizes uh in its inactive state. Now, the other way that you can actually get access to 
the binding site is through diffusion through the um is through diffusion through the lipid membrane. That's a lot slower. Mm-hmm. But then they they I think they'll give you some examples of why there are some types of local anesthetics where you know it doesn't actually require the um the M gate to be opened for local anesthetics to work. But certainly if you have the M gate open, it's going to be quicker. Okay, because of where that binding site is. Excellent. Uh, next question. When you discuss thickness, you relate to distance local anesthetic needs to travel uh, with respect in respect of the size. That is diameter, axon to stroma ratio. Do, uh, do you put this under the same sort of heading or under the nerves sensitivity to local anesthetics? Um, I would put it under thickness, but certainly you can, I, I think that it's more than reasonable um, to put this under nerve sensitivity. I guess nerve sensitivity. Okay, the, the only reason why I'll put this under thickness is so that I could frame it within the fixed law of um, of sort of, uh, you know, diffusion in terms of the formula related to it. But yes, I, I think that, you know, that's just a personal preference. I think I've seen multiple variations of how you could answer this question. And you could have a, another column or another subsection after the fixed law that uh, you could add as other considerations, one being the sensitivities to local anesthetic, which then you could put that in. I think that's that's more than reasonable. Like you don't have to follow um, you know, what I what I prescribe. I think it's really nice to have that bit of creativity in terms of what makes sense to you. And I think that, you know, if we were to read um, someone else's answers, fixed law of diffusion would probably be the way that would frame most of their answers. But then you would also see, I think, other considerations that they that they would describe, which probably, you know, they didn't feel comfortable in fitting into those um, ideas there. Mm-hmm. Next question. Is there actually evidence to support the idea of active nerves that is moving the limb to increase the nerve channel opening speeding the onset by allowing faster access to the interior of the cell. So you're talking about, this is frequency dependent block. Um, And yes, so there is that idea about, um, you know, if the, the more channels you activate, then the more you have them open rather than in the resting state. And then the more you allow them to sort of diffuse across. So, the question is whether there's evidence. Mm-hmm. I, I'm, I don't know whether there's evidence, but I think that there's that, and I'm, and um, you know, I, I must admit, I'm, I haven't uh, sort of looked into the research. I don't know whether if you could do a quick lit, lit search now, La, as I'm talking. Yeah, absolutely, doing it now. But there is that idea of frequency dependent blockade and the idea that as you block those channels and as they cycle across from the, um, active from the resting active to inactive state, the time it takes to cycle um, to do that one whole cycle is actually a lot slower than it takes for local anesthetics to diffuse out of that channel. And what that means is that as you continue, as you continually allow to um, open up more channels through this, you know, moving the, um, you know, moving the limb, or, or activating the limb, then the more channels get blocked. I've just, I've just literally, it's the first Google kind of search I've done, frequency dependent blocking humans. 
um, by Candido, and this was in anesthesia analgesia. And it, it was a you know letters to the editor. So in response, we concur with Stevens that as our study demonstrated, a frequency dependent action of local anesthetics is unlikely to be a mechanism at work in stimulation induced, i.e. muscular exercise, reductions in latency of onset of sensory or motor block following peripheral nerve injections in humans. And that's, that's a whole mouthful. So essentially it's unlikely to be a me mechanism at work um, in stimulation induced reductions in latency of onset of sensory or motor block following peripheral nerve injections. In fact, frequency dependent block that is use dependent or phasic block is likely to be limited clinically in humans to cardiac tissue exposed to critical concentrations of tertiary local anesthetics. So experimentally, sodium conductance decreases with repetitive ne neural stimulation. In vitro studies in mammalian peripheral nerves and in cardiac tissue demonstrated that the intensity of depth of impulse blockage increases as the rate of stimulation increased. And then, I mean, they're getting into some pretty detailed stuff here. Yeah. Right. Well, but if anyone if anyone finds anything else out, that'd be really really useful to let us know. Um. Uh, so the next one is um. Why does increased lipid solubility translate to increased protein binding? Now that's a that's a chemistry question. So I think that the concept I think that everyone can agree on is that um, when you increase lipid solubility it's going to be associated with increased protein binding. I think um, we can all sort of agree on that. And I think that uh, if, you know, it, it has to do with how the, um, the bonds sort of occur between the drug and the protein. But in terms of the mechanism, I'm actually not sure. I think it's a great question, but I think what um, needs to be appreciated is just that idea that increased lipid solubility is associated with, increase protein binding excellent in fact, if, in fact if anyone has an answer to that um yeah please share it with us so uh if you want to put it into this chat here or even you know send us an email or or, or um put it down in the comments below that'd be great beautiful hey stan um should we close on that i think we've done well this has been yeah a, a great hour and look, I, I think that hopefully all you guys, um, you know, sort of leave this session today with that really, with that understanding that, uh, you know, there's a lot of nuance in terms of the onset of local anesthetic. And what I, you know, the key message I want to sort of have you sort of come across is that idea of lipid solubility, that idea of how lipid solubility is associated with protein binding and how lipid solubility is also associated with potency as well. And it doesn't present the full story of the onset of local anesthetics and also the idea of how and why PKA is more important. Yeah. And I think if you can take that out of this session, I reckon you're more than 50% away there to you know, answering this question really, really well, because I think that that's what actually confuses a lot of trainees. Stan, thanks so much. That was fantastic. I mean, so we went through the speed of onset of blockade of local anesthetics and a major peripheral nerve. Um, again, I, I, I love the, the detail you go into this, but I think I learned quite a few things as well, um, which was really great. So yeah, thanks everyone for listening and watching to this combined episode of Adrenaline Memories and Anesthesia Coffee Break. And yeah, we'll see you next time. Please share with anyone who might be interested. And yeah, all the best for your study. Thank you.